0: Mighty Lord and Everlasting Father, you have delivered your words into our hands. We have, O God, your spoken word and we ask that it would minister to our soul, minister to our heart, minister to our mind. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us receive it. We pray that the Spirit would be with us as we receive it. We ask that it would be preached accordingly, that it would be the truth and that we would be conformed to your image as a result. Help us, O Lord, minister the Lord Jesus Christ to us as he is the living word, and help us understand what you would have us to know in this passage this morning. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. This is just after they had eaten of the forbidden fruit. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you? That you should not eat. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it, all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and the dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand, and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This second part of Genesis chapter 3 demonstrates the effects of sin in the human race. Where Adam and Eve had life they are now going to have death. Where they had pleasure, now they're going to have pain and misery. Where they had abundance, they will have a meager sustenance by toil all the days of their life. Where they had perfect harmony with God and with each other, now they will have alienation and conflict. This section is divided into three sections. The confrontation by the Lord in which the sinners, hearing him, fear and hide in the midst of the garden. Then the word of the Lord in which the new order is declared for the serpent, the woman, and the man. And then the provision of clothing and sacrifice from the Lord in which the human instinct to cover guilt is superseded by the Lord. All of it is a demonstration of how paradise is lost. And a new order, a new world view, is now set in place. In verses 8 to 13, we start to see God calls sinners to confess their sin, not to attempt to excuse themselves. These sinners were aware of their sin. They ran from God because of fear of judgment in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the gardens. Adam would have had communion with God at this time, as the scriptures had already told us, that he would walk with God in the cool of the day. But on this day, it demonstrates that something is terribly wrong. Adam is now hiding in the trees. Immediately, God inquires as to their presence to draw out of them a confession. He wants them to confess. God interrogates Adam and Eve as sinners who are hiding from his pure gaze. After they sinned, they had a sense of the holy presence of God and they hid themselves because wicked sinners cannot stand to be in the presence of holiness. They are confronted by God's penetrating words. And they have to confess their sins, not excuse themselves from their sins. Then the Lord God called, said, where are you? So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you shouldn't eat? This section You have to look very closely at the Hebrew words and the word order to catch the emphasis of the dialogue that's going on. Here we first have the man's confession. The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I hid myself. I was naked. I hid. Who told you, he asked, that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree which I told you you shouldn't have? And Adam said, The woman that you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Now, there are two sets of questions for the man. First, there's a rhetorical question. Where are you? As if God didn't know. That God said it to the man that the answer is not literal, but explanatory, indicating that it's rhetorical. He wants Adam to say something. Adam's answer centers on his fear because he was naked. Nakedness always demonstrates shame, fear, And this is going to be, from now on, a common reaction of sinners whenever they come into the presence of a holy God throughout the rest of the scriptures. The prophet, Isaiah, falls down as though dead. Habakkuk says his bones are rotting. Peter cowers in the back of the boat when Jesus is there. Sinners react this way to the holiness of God. Second, there is an interrogation about Adam's disobedience. The question was a reminder that he was eating and it was a direct result of the commandment. A violation of the commandment. God is vindicated in his question, demonstrating his sovereign power to command his creatures. He gets to command his creatures. He gets to command what his creatures will do or what they should not do. Adam should have confessed, but his confession was delayed because first he blamed God And then he blamed his wife. He said, The woman you gave me. Mm. Mm. Though this language focuses on the woman, the clause blames God for providing the woman to Adam. But at the end of this, he confesses. And he says, I ate. Then, the woman's confession. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. In speaking with Eve, God's question is very forceful. It has the idea behind it, do you realize what you have done? Do you understand what you've done? But the woman also played the blame game. She blames the serpent. But still, like Adam says at the end, I ate. In the dialogue, the Lord shows his majesty and power by asking penetrating questions like this, and the humans appear fearful and defensive with evasive excuses for their sin. Then God declares the punishments for sin and the new world view that sinners would have. The fall brought a perpetual struggle now between good and evil. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be a struggle now between the two. The curse on the serpent demonstrates the first reality that something other than the snake itself is important in this deception. There is a curse on the animal, but verse 15 suggests that there is a satanic force behind the fall. And the reality now of a struggle that would ensue between the woman, the seed of the woman, and the serpent. In the first part of the curse, the focus seems to be on the animal that was used in the temptation. The basic idea of cursing is because of the intrusion of sin, the intrusion of toil, The intrusion now of exclusion. Curse has the idea of banishment. Especially from a place of blessing. The serpent's going to eat dust now all the days of its life. The very opposite of what paradise was all about. Being lush and beautiful and wonderful. And then God, in verse 15, demonstrates the serpent's curse in a perpetual conflict that will end with the seed of the woman delivering a crushing blow to the seed of the serpent the serpent himself there are two lineages here one is the seed of the serpent and one is the seed of the woman the woman's seed is the line of the mediator to come the genealogy of light or of the living the serpent's seed is the line of the devil as jesus said in john 8:44 you are of your father the devil when he spoke to the Pharisees. There's conflict that extends in these genealogical lines and the struggle between good and evil would always be there in the human race. But ultimately, the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent's head, crush it when its heel was bruised. The curse is something which does not grow into hostility but something that which is actually hostile right from the very beginning. As a result of the curse, there's going to be this great cosmic struggle. The seeds are very important. Oftentimes, reading genealogies is somewhat dull when we read through the scriptures so and so begat so and so. Yet they're very important because God shows us in this passage that the seed. The genealogical line of the woman is going to crush and destroy the head of the serpent. The line of the serpent is the line of Satan. The line of the woman is the line of Christ. And the way that this word is used shows us that the word can mean both the line itself and the one who epitomizes the line, which is Jesus Christ, the seed to come. And it's qualified in the next part of the verse when it refers to the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. You will never understand the concreteness of the promises of God if you don't understand that there are two lines that are fixed. The line of the serpent and the line of the woman. In ultimate sense, there are no crossovers from the good line to the bad line, or from the bad line to the good line. These are set. In God's plan, there are two and only two lines of people. Those of the kingdom of darkness, and those the kingdom of light. In God's plan, there are two lines, the sheep and the goats, the saved and the lost, the wicked and the just, the wheat and the tares, the light and the darkness, only two. But he that comes in the line of the woman shall crush the serpent's head, even though his heel is bruised, God says the seed shall come and destroy the serpent and his line. And the head, obviously, is the vital organ. If you crush the head without a king, the kingdom will tumble and fall. Yet he will not be crushed without a fight, for he will strike the coming one's heel. The best place for a serpent to bite you would be in the back of the foot by the heel, or where we would call it the Achilles heel. If you have a Uh, ever ever had had or have known what kind of pain is involved in injury to the Achilles' heel, you would know that the serpent will have a well-planned and painful strike against the coming one. The God of peace will crush Satan, though, under your feet shortly, as Paul says in Romans 16.20. This is not a might, it's not a probability or a possibility, this is the plan of God. One will come and one will crush the head of the serpent. This is what we call The proto-evangelium, the before gospel, the first heralding of the gospel, the first time the one is said to be coming to do God's work. The fall not only brought that curse upon the serpent, but it brought the woman pain in childbirth and also uh, domination by the male. A curse on her. In the oracle for the woman, one part deals with childbirth and the other with her relationship to the man. Conception is the location of the pain. God says that he's going to increase her pain in childbearing. There is, at first, no pain in conception and childbearing. That's what it would have been in paradise. Paradise. The word conception here means the whole process that begins with conception moves through the emotional and physical toil of bearing children. All of that will be a curse. The second part of the pronouncement, your desire shall be for your husband, the Hebrew word desire is interpreted to describe prompting to evil. It's important to understand the the idea here of the rule. It's a punishment. That God gives the woman. To attempt to make it teach the submission of the woman here to the husband and some crazy domination idea that the husband is supposed to be over the woman in that way. That's not the point. The curse lies in this. That the woman who's fallen and depraved would be the arch enemy of the man. And the man in his depraved fallen state would dominate the woman. The relationship is messed up. The relationship has changed from one of harmony and unity to one of pain and misery as a result of the curse. The fall also brought something to the man in painful toil and the promise of death. God said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. Adam sinned willfully at his wife's prompting and brought sin into the human race by his act. His judgment is that as he ate, as she did, he would experience painful toil now in eating. The punishment would be a perpetual reminder of the fall and of his sin. Every time he's out there raking the ground trying to make something grow, he'll remember the fruit that he ate. And the toil is indefinite. It would continue until the day of his death, when he returns to the dust from which he was taken. But interestingly enough, death now serves as the finality of the temporary curse. God doesn't say that the toil is going to continue after he dies. The toil continues until he dies, when something else will happen after he dies. God then pronounces their stupidity, And trying to be like God through deceptive and disobedient mean, when he majestically states, dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. One theologian stated it this way, the oracles thus all reflect Talionic justice. They sinned by eating, so they would suffer to eat. She led her husband to sin, and so he would be a master over him, her. They brought pain into the world by their disobedience, so they would have painful toil in their respective lives. And the serpent ruined the human race, so he would be destroyed, one for the other. Judgment is the inevitable consequence of disobedience, and they cannot escape it. However, amazingly enough, God makes gracious provisions for believing sinners. Now that there will be a brand new worldview to deal with, misery, pain, and toil, God extends grace to his people. Faith overcomes the doom of the curse. Genesis 3.20, listen to what it says. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Now, why is that verse there? It's like stuck right in the middle. It doesn't sort of fit. Well, in contrast to death, now present because of Adam, Adam, by faith, names his wife, demonstrating that he accepts the consequence of sin, but hopes in what God will do in the seed of the woman. She is the mother of the living. In spite of the curse, her name, which is literally life-giver, demonstrates that the woman herself became a pledge in the continuation and survival of the race and victory over death. Adam is setting the standard for the new world order in God's grace, faith. Grace, though, will cover the sinner's shame. In verse 21 it says, Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. This is where we have sacrifice and substitutionary atonement set in its place. Instead of killing Adam and Eve, which God should have done, Right then and there. God killed and sacrificed an animal in their stead and he clothed them. He gave them a covering. They were naked. Trees do not cover over them. Fig leaves are not going to be covering enough. They were insufficient. In the Hebrew mind, plants are not alive like animals are. And so sin can't be atoned for by some mechanical action, by taking some fig leaves off of a tree and trying to cover yourself up with them. It has to only be atoned for by sacrifice. God alone can supply the necessary covering for them. And so he kills these two animals and he clothes them. He gives them a covering. And then, in verses 22 to 24, God prevents the extension of their life. He stops them. He drives them out. He, t- he has a cherubim placed at the garden gate so that they can't go back in anymore and eat of the tree of life. God prevents Adam and Eve from extending life in a fallen world. Would that be terrible? It's clear that whatever they had become was wicked and evil and God acted to prevent them from continuing on perpetually in that condition. If they had eaten of the tree of life, They would have. And so he drove them out of the garden and stationed his angels and the flashing sword at the entrance of the garden. Now in all of this, that is what the text is about. That is what the text says. What shall we pull out of the text for us to understand in terms of the doctrine that God would have us believe? This is not very difficult with this particular text. The fall and the depravity of man is everywhere seen. Sinful rebellion against God brings pain, it brings conflict, it brings death. Life as it was for Israel, or as it is today, is not the way God created it. It's not the way that it was in paradise. There was a break in the harmony from creation to the present condition. This passage explains why men and women labor in toil, in agony, in conflict, And everything they do, all the days of the life, up until the day they die. Sin is the thing that brought on this dilemma. And nothing short of the removal of sin will end it. This is what we call total depravity. What that means is that the natural man is never able to do any good that is fundamentally pleasing to God, and in fact does evil... All of the time. Now, that's a positive statement in terms of understanding what this doctrine is. Listen to what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. It is immediately seen this way. In Adam's hiding in his fear his shifting blame, his thought that fig leaves could cover his sin, his thought that his sin could so easily be dealt with, his thought that God was to blame, the woman was to blame, all of this demonstrates the immediate total depravity of his mind and fallenness. Negatively, we call this total inability. Men are totally unable... To do good. Men cannot do good. One council said, All men are incapable of saving good. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Men, in and of themselves, left to themselves, are unable to save themselves. They cannot do any good only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only by God's provision can they be saved. Men do not understand that which is good. Acts 16.14 says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. Now listen to what the text says. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by paul if god had not opened her heart she would have never believed the gospel it's impossible because men cannot understand that which is good unless god first opens their heart they can't do good they can't understand good they cannot even desire to do good john 6:44 jesus says no one can Come to me, unless the Father who sent me draws them. Can is an ability word. They don't have the ability to come to God unless the Father enables them to come. Men are dead men walking around. They're not sick in sin. They're dead in sin. Colossians 2.13 says, Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Dead. Ephesians 2, one who were dead in trespasses and sin. Men are dead. Arminian theology today believes men are sick in sin, that they're sort of fallen, that Adam's fall sort of affected things, but they can still do some good things. Well, the Scriptures teach the opposite. They teach that men are dead. They're dead in sin. They're like walking zombies. And unless God comes and changes them and opens their heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will remain so. There are hundreds of scriptures about the total depravity of man. Genesis 6, five. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's all man did. He only thought evilly. All the intents of his heart were evil Jeremiah seventeen nine says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it that's how the heart is Psalm fifty one five as we sang this morning behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me from the very moment that the two cells came together and formed David in the womb he was wicked Isaiah sixty four and verse six But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. Anything that we would do that we think would be good, as Isaiah says, all of our good works, all of our righteousness, is as a filthy rag. What is the Lord's response to this? Judgment. God is obliged to send Adam and Eve into everlasting torment, prepared for the devil and his angels. That is what he is obliged to do. God is a holy God. He must be just. That is why we call it justice. But, God is also gracious. We thank the Lord that he is gracious. The compassionate judge of fallen men has a divine provision and a pattern of of substitutionary atonement is given for men in this passage. And it's the only satisfactory covering Adam and Eve would receive. It comes directly from God. What must sinners do? What must they do in order to be saved? Well, the Holy Spirit must come. He must open their heart as He did Lydia. And they must confess their sin and trust in God's goodness for provision of life. Without that, what considers hope for judgment nothing hell for all eternity but by faith just as adam they can look forward to release to be released from the curse they can look forward and anticipate heaven heaven there's no curse the new heaven and the new earth there's no sin there's no death there's nothing that has anything to do with the fall It'll all be wiped away. It'll all be thrown away. It'll be perfect. Mercy is what God does when he wants to, not because he has to. And he goes to great lengths to do it. He gave Adam his word to protect him. He sacrificed two animals in place of Adam and Eve when he could have destroyed them both when they ate the fruit. And he sent them out of the garden so that they wouldn't leave an extended life in sin. Even in those actions, God is gracious. But most of all, God had already decided to send his only son to die for that sin. And already the son had agreed to selflessly be bitten by the serpent that he might purchase the chosen line of the woman for God and for his glory. How does that affect us today? How does that affect us right now when we leave? Well, sin is part of the plan of God. The fall was not some surprise for God. It was planned. Before the worlds were formed, God entered into a holy covenant, an eternal covenant between the Father, Son, and Spirit, to create, to allow the fall, and then to redeem men from that fall, demonstrating all the attributes and characteristics of grace that he would show men. There was no grace in the garden. God was not gracious to Adam and Eve in the garden. The Garden of Eden was set by law. And Adam was to reflect reflect that law in obedience. If you sin one time, you're out. He sinned one time, and they were out. The temptation shifted that focus. Instead of following God's desires, he followed his own. And he broke the covenant upon that first sin. And God graciously, afterwards, dealt with his fallen creation according to the standards of his holiness by sending the one who would crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus. Sin, then, is a very integral part of God's plan. Sin is wickedness, and sin is evil. It's not some oriental mysticism where we see the yin and the yang, the good and the evil just struggling back and forth, and we don't know which one is going to win. There is a struggle for Christians, for you and I, But not for God. God is the ultimate good. And in the end, death and the devil will be thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. They'll be done away with. They're no match for the grace of God. God not only allows sin, but he plans it. He uses it for his glory. He uses it for his purposes. Genesis 50 and verse 20. You remember the words of Joseph? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is to this day, to save many people alive. Even though Joseph's brothers meant evil against him and did sin and wickedness, and God allowed that, yet God meant it for good. God is supremely good. Or even more basically, as we look at our text itself, I will put enmity between... You and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. God has the power to do that. He, though, is supremely good in that the one shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's God's plan in in his ways to bring forth his Son, to bring about the ultimate redemption of everything, including the very ground that he cursed. And for believers in Jesus Christ, life and the spirit removes the sting of the curse. God's gracious provisions are only found in Jesus Christ and the seed of the woman. The believer, the Christian, there are better prospects out there. The sting of the curse has utterly been removed. And in view of the glorious prospects that lie ahead of heaven, he's excited for the hope that will one day be given to him. There's no going back to the garden. We don't want to go back to the garden The only way now is to go to glory, to join the last Adam who died as the curse for the human race and changed death into life through his resurrection from the dead. That doesn't mean that as a result of this, life will be easy. That's not what God promises in the curse. As a result of the curse, life is hard. But a hard life for the Christian is overflowing with grace. The sinful worshipper, Adam, lived because of God's gracious institution, because of what he did. He was able to live. And the human race lives on in the present evil world, and so the curse remains in effect, but God will be gracious ultimately in the end. But we still have to deal with the curse now, and it's unmistakable. It's all around us. Read the obituaries and see its effects. Stop taking the pain relievers for your ailments for a little while and you'll see its effects. Look at your body and all of its problems. Overweight, old, tired, disease. It's all the curse. In this life, the curse is a vivid reality. We see people walking around the mall. Gone to the mall the other day. People are just walking around and they're buying things. Trying to fill up the emptiness of their life. They're walking around just getting older and getting older until they die and return to the dust that they were once brought forth from as Adam. What do they have? All they have is living or trying to bear the curse. But life is not bearable. Sinful men and women cannot make it bearable. Only Christ makes this life bearable. In life. And walking in the spirit under the guise of the one who crushes the serpent. Even in death, even in death, Christians escape the curse. Oh, death, where is your sting? Even for those who are walking around out there like dead men walking, zombies, death is not fun. Death is a curse for them. Death has a great sting for them. As a result of the fall, we must remember that God never promises life will be easy. I mean, you hear these preachers, they'll say, once you're saved, all your problems will go away. No. Preachers who say that need a reality check. They need to get into their Bibles. John 16 and verse 33 says, in the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. The little book of promises that you find in the Christian bookstores usually forget that promise. That's a promise. Yet, it's not the whole thing. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Faith in the one who overcomes the serpent and restores paradise will yield much towards your sanctification and your preparation for the new world in which we await the restoration of all things. Paradise was lost, but the one who is going to come will restore a greater paradise that we may live in harmony with God, escaping the depravity that we see surrounding us in this world. And are we so blessed to be able to have our eyes opened that we might see that. Let's pray. Mighty Lord and everlasting one, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even though the fall is all around us, we have the wonderful blessing of the one who came to bruise the head of the serpent, to crush him. We thank you, O God, that we have your promises. This life will not be easy in our toil under the depravity and fall of man. And yet, O God, we thank you for the one who came and who saves us from that. We pray that you would cause us to meditate upon him, that even though our bodies might ache, even though we may be getting old, Even though we see death all around us, inescapably, we still look to Jesus Christ by faith, asking that he would aid us in this life, captain our vessel, that we may storm the troubled waters. We so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.